Welcome to The Look Back, the newest podcast hosted by former journalist turned media executive and host Keith Newman. The Look Back provides insights, tips, and maybe a few laughs during a free-flowing conversation on that roller coaster ride that reflects the past, present, and future of the Silicon Valley and tech economy. And I am so excited to share with you my audience here of millions that we have with us the legend of the software tech world, um, a guy who I've known for, for many years and we've had so many uh, successful uh, runs together, but he has just been on you know more rocket ship rides than Elon Musk. We're talking about the former executive <laughs> of Salesforce, Creative Labs, BEA, Twilio, what am I missing? There's a couple in there that probably people wouldn't know, but they've used daily. So I yeah, think that's no a good kidding. thing. So if you haven't guessed or if you didn't read the liner notes or whatever it got you here, hey, it's Bobby Napoltonia from all of those companies and so much more. And he's known more for being Bobby than he is known for any of these other companies. But Bobby, welcome to the podcast called The Look Back. I'm so excited to have this chat with you. Thanks for having me so much. And it couldn't come on a better day, probably. You know, following up yesterday being Eastern, we have so much, so much to be thankful for. Keith, I have to be honest, there's not a day that goes by that I don't thank God for my blessings and what he's afforded me in uh, the 30 plus years in this industry. What, what he's uh, afforded me the opportunity to actually see and experience, and for the most case, get my fingerprints on, has been um, not only inspirational for myself, but helping drive others but help form the foundations of, uh, of what I would say our industry really is today. And whether we look at the cloud or multimedia and I'll date myself, but it's pretty exciting. So thanks for having me. And I'm looking forward to hopefully unpacking some great nuggets and some uh, drop some dimes of wisdom. You know what? That sounds great. And we're in an interesting time, Bobby, where not a lot of people are, are looking back and saying, boy, how thoughtful and, and fortunate I am to be in this in, to be in this this industry in this day i mean we're in quarantine and covid and while there's light at the end of the tunnel a lot of people are suffering and it's challenging but it is good to take a moment reflect and acknowledge the fact that uh, we've ha- we've been part of an amazing not just decade but almost a generation of tremendous success growth uh, economic prosperity uh, evolution but we have so much work to do still too so um, it's, it's interesting you should say that. I feel like we've achieved so much, yet we're just getting started. And it's interesting because I thought about that. You know, when you take a look back, do we, do we dissect the time frames and, and will we come like, you know, we had the, and today they call it the fourth industrial revolution, but what would we call it the PC era, then the handheld, then the mobile, then the cloud? Like, what are those real monikers? Or do we say it's the tech? And then in the tech, you have compute, and you've got storage, and you've like, so there's sort of ways that you can look at it. Or do we just say that, why isn't it as easy as to use? And it's because we're really in the second or the third ending, especially as it rates to consumers. Yeah. And if you think of businesses and you look at how much uh, uh, is actually being spent on the cloud, we're just getting started there too. So if you look back two decades and you say, oh my God, all of these systems have allowed us to achieve where we are today, knowing that the, the future is infinite based upon compute power and price and ubiquity, because we, you know, the world is now a handheld world and we have connectivity. What is going to be out there on the next frontier? Amazing to think that the next 40 years 
could have 10 times the amount of innovation that we've experienced in the last 40, but yet that is what the, the futurists are predicting. Yeah. It makes you wonder even in the next five or 10, what will it be? <laughs> well, let's take, let's take that look back just because you've had such a sparkling and phenomenal career. I just want to touch on a couple of those. I, I think my favorite, to be honest, and I know it's, it, it's funny, but Creative Labs. I know you were kind of early in a way in your career. Uh, we met during the retail vision days when the creative crew would come down. And of course, this is the company that marketed Sound Blaster. Um, but I don't know if a lot of people realize the challenge that Sound Blaster was in in those days. And you had quite the team. I mean, that was a group of like intense intellectual marauders led by a a, a, I think a Korean CEO? A Singaporean, Sim Wong Hu. Oh. Great call, yeah. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I hadn't thought of Sim in like a long time, but it was just, and then there was Craig and Greg and Greg and you. And boy, when we got together down there and a bunch of other guys too, even, that were phenomenal, Mark and Steve. And I mean, I remember a lot of those names just because they were always so intense that when you met them, you'd remember them. <laughs> What I'm surprised you didn't say Arnold. You know, Arnold. I know, Arnold. Yeah. Got rest in peace. That's so great. We'll, we'll pull, we'll, since you chose creative, we'll pull oh. Arnold out because that was one of the, he orchestrated what I will reflect back on to being one of the greater Sun Tzu moves in our industry that people never even heard about or knew. Okay. So you'll, so we could share some stuff, but boy, that company, talk about a rocket ship in a competitive space you know, bringing sound to the computer, uh, to the PC, and on a rocket ship. I forgot, fastest company to a billion? Or well, so, yeah, fastest growing company in the world for the first half of the 90s. And we were, we, had a, we, we achieved a small feat. We were the third after two smaller companies, Intel and Microsoft, to reach 100 million users. And so this is when you actually shipped product, had things, and had to go create it. But, but it took a while for us to build up there. And, and if we could just take a step back, it's interesting because you and I drop names like their colors. That's black, that's white, that's green. Well, if we want to actually take back and we say, let's look at the PC industry because that's the era that you've tried to jump into. We could go back to the mainframe because unfortunately I got some green screens in my history. <laughs> but there were only three things that mattered during that phase. And, and that's because the PC had become this standard at the time, boxish. You only had two processors, Intel and AMD, and they all kind of worked. And then it was about your storage, your memory, and there was best in breed class people that went out there. But the only thing that people cared about were things that were extensions of human sensory. What do I hear? What do I see? And what do I touch? So let's just unpack that. Let's start with touch. What company is still alive today that actually leads touching and inputting inside of computer devices? You're probably using a camera of theirs right now to actually- Logitech? Boom, bingo, think about that. So what do I win? <laughs> uh, test of time knowledge, but think yeah. about that. So they own, what do I touch? Then you jump to, what do I see? And we all think, I think we know who that big dog is now, but they weren't that big dog. And it was 3DFX and 3D Labs and a smaller company called NVIDIA. And uh, today, NVIDIA is not just the leader that owned graphics, but the GPU. And we've really up-leveled so much that compute power lets it that it's just not for graphicing power, it's processing power. And then, of course, lastly, what do we hear? 
Because if I can get to your, your sensory touching, seeing and hearing, your immersive experience, and that was the beginning of what we all termed the multimedia and how we went from static and books to things that actually make the PC interactive and enable the things that we have today. And um, without a doubt, from 30 million to a billion five, selling a $99 product as an ASP as a whole and actually having a strategy at the time that allowed you to seed it at an OEM for a, for a $15, $16 chip, knowing that your ultimate prize was a retail $200. And I hate, I hate, I hate admitting this because people will get sick to their stomach, but like 250 points of margin on a hardware product. Yeah. So when you think of those margin dollars, they allow you to do a lot. But then that actually allowed and, and, and formed the foundation of is if you get an OEM design win, how do you have what today people, it was interesting. When I was at Salesforce, we came up with customers for life. And I had to tell Mark, we did that over a decade ago. And he's like, what do you mean? Well, I acquired you for $15 and I got $2,000 in the next five years out of you, which was unheard of on our industries. Like, how did you do that? And you started the seed and grow model. And then we actually had developers that did the applications. And so most of, uh, most of the playbooks we created post that really were emulated based on what I learned there. That was phenomenal. And, and we had a lot of competition coming after us too. Well, give me, a, give me an executive summary version of Arnold's uh, Sun, yeah. Tzu, Sun Tzu moment. So what I just referenced was really what I think people were looking for. And so multimedia had to do with, and I'll drop names, the Broder Buns and the Mercer Mares and all of these interactive first things that were available to come online from PC games to multimedia. And we knew that that, that that genre would only get us so far that we had to get into the business world. And that's really where DVDs brought us. And it's hard to think that that would have been the medium to actually distribute software. And Arnold said, well, if we're going to do the DVD bundle, that gives us so much more capabilities. We have to go after a business user because it's going to be a higher ASP. We have to have a killer app in there. And at the time, there were really no business killer apps. And so he cut a deal with this company up in the Northwest, and we had the exclusive distribution rights for Office bundled into any device sold at retail. So now imagine that Office is out trying to create a category selling for $699 to a user, and we bundle it, and we throw it into a multimedia upgrade kit with a DVD drive, speakers, and graphics cards for $599, $100 less, and so marketing was pretty easy. Throw all the shit away and just get the software. Yeah. Well, and within the first two or three quarters, we were outselling Microsoft probably 10 to one. And uh, uh, gosh, I don't know if I can say it. it's been so long ago, but needless to say, at the end of the day, they got out of the sound card business and we acquiesced our rights to distribute that product. And the rest is history because we got rid of what would have been a formidable computer coming after a competitor coming after us. And yet we just also broke through the barrier of how do we get into the business world from the consumer space. And that was probably the first of many steps that allowed us to dominate in, uh, in that sector and become the global leader. So it, it really was a combination of product, but at the end, products were products. It was more about marketing and distribution strategy that, that created the maximum differentiation. Packaging and going to market. I mean, GDM yeah. wins every day. Yeah. So let's transition over to uh, from the frying pan to the fire, right? You mentioned Benioff. Uh, he, he ran a little company that wanted to get rid of software. Um, it's really, in my view, cloud software and, and SaaS 
uh, all came out of Salesforce. I don't know if that's rightly um, or wrongly described, but you came over there as essentially, as I recall, the first channel sales leader. And then you were also asked to run App Exchange. Is that is that how I re, do I recall correctly? Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, um, I had met Mark a couple years before I joined, and um, even though I'm addicted to startups, I'm also unfortunately um, have someone to answer to called a wife, and so she got me directed to take the job at BEA, not at Salesforce, prior to. And, and Mark and I remained friends. And a couple years later, he called back, and they'd gotten some lift off. And they're probably doing about 70 million. So at the time, that was pretty significant. And we were transitioning, in case you all remember, from ASPs, which were application service providers that took the old software and tried to put it on the web, but it wasn't architected, wasn't built. And so it was really crappy experience. Right. That's what, and BEA was actually trying to facilitate that. We, we drove a lot of the infrastructure. Yeah, nine out of 10 mission critical applications in the world we drove and powered. So we were like the engine of engines for the best of the best. And so... Uh, Mark called and we, we, we were, uh, he had an interesting problem. Everybody thought no software means no services, means no ecosystem. And, and very early on, he knew that uh, no ecosystem means I'll never be a trillion dollar company selling to businesses because with the consumer play, you can go direct to consumers, but you then sort of peter out and you even see D2C companies today trying to figure out what their channel models are. We just saw Casper at Santana Row, like what the hell is that doing there? And, and look, the Amazon stores. Right. It's an extension back to back to the future. Right. Um, and yes, so it was really around what would our world look like if we never delivered anything and what would those models be? And so we created the app exchange from scratch and uh, shortly thereafter created force.com, which was the first low code, no code clicks platform that truly started the beginning of what I believe is a transformation for every CIO or any IT leader in terms of what the capabilities could be. And that opened up where we are today. Wow. So when you talk about building something like that, what are the steps you take to try to create that layer of value? So all these other you know, um, types of players across various segments want to come and play with Salesforce. Yes. So um, uh, working for some of those name brand companies, while we may not have been when we started, thankfully I had... Um, at, uh, at the ones we're referring to, mature aspirational leaders that understand the importance of certain things. And so we had a weekend away with this guy um, whom I learned from at Creative because we literally lived inside the tornado and crossed the chasm. We were one of the first ones to do it. Is, uh, uh, we had Jeff, a weekend with Jeffrey Moore and he teaches a class on core versus context. And I remember sitting in, uh, in, in, the, in, in the workshop, we'll call it, and really beating us up about core versus context and what was it meant to be. And if we really wanted to own CRM, then we had to be sort of the system of record or customer master. And that, that was at its time so much heavy lifting that we couldn't do everything else we needed. And so we immediately came up with a framework, which was, well, if that's our core, and you got to remember who we were competing with at that time, some joggernauts that really own the enterprise. And that's what our, we were truly going after. And so uh, the framework was, if this is core, what are all the contexts? And so we came up with the core block and started building complete complement extend. And those would be features or capabilities that will allow us to go into these markets. And then the next rainbow that went around that was build, buy, or partner. 
well, we couldn't build it because we couldn't get enough engineers. We couldn't buy it because we didn't have enough money. And so it was go partner and figure it out. And so really working with the product teams to understand what are the next key areas or key elements that we need that will allow us to propel ourselves up into the enterprise. And that would be like e-signature, configuration, quote to cash. And we didn't build any of those. And we said to ourselves, what if we could build, here's a quick funny dive. Well, I don't know. I should tell that story. Here's yeah, a no, quick thing. On. So we created, we created, we created this thing called the app store and that was yeah. our internal name for it. And, and uh, we were all excited about it. And maybe a couple months later, some other company came out with the app store. And so we changed ours to the app exchange. And uh, I'm sure there's some behind the scenes stories there. And so, um, so we, the, the app exchange was born and the first apps, we had to really create the blueprints. And so we created, uh, we took our SEs, uh, sales engineers, because they had been on the front line hearing what customers needed and wanted. And we created these frameworks for scenario building, almost like hello worlds, but you couldn't deploy them. And that was the art of the possibility. And then we systematically took into, great, who will we get to build it? That was within it. So I mean, imagine we are struggling as a company to go out. Now I'm going to get people to build on top of us and getting you to understand. So I had to have a carrot and that carrot was, well, look, I'm gonna let you sell into my install base and we're gonna teach you to go to market and we're gonna do more than 70% of the heavy lifting. So all you have to do is your core and we'll handle the context. And your yeah. core was really around these things. Yeah. And a lot of those are, a lot of those early, uh, early companies were friends of ours or friends of mine that I met in BEA who had built the last generation of software. Isn't that funny, Bobby? I was going to say, so many of those companies, App Exchange, have become enormous companies. This is oh, a significant ecosystem. This is almost like, I don't want to say the minor leagues, but this is where you go, cut your teeth, learn from Salesforce, um, get into their sales cycles as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, would, I would argue that you could build, you know, it's approaching, I'm most excited of all of the fortunate opportunities been afforded because that's approaching a trillion dollar marketplace and we've never seen anything like that and i would argue it may have been the best mode ever created in our industry because no one's ever been and i've tried several companies post that to recreate it and um, perfect storm perfect leadership perfect teams um and execution okay so look you build something like that you're going to have a few fits and starts and i'm sure looking back you might do a think a couple things different but anything major stick out at you or or was it just it all kind of came together after a few. No, and it didn't. I, you know, it's interesting you should say that. So imagine going, and now we're getting small companies with people that never did or didn't have the resources to build. So we had to teach them. So you have to think about the recruitment, the enablement, the management. This is really like care, love, and feeding for an ecosystem from scratch that had never existed, where most other ecosystems were spin-outs of others. You know, if you take the computer ones, they were a spin out of the HP world or the compact world. These were sort of like flow through technology. Everything we were doing was brand new. And so we knew that we had to get um, some street cred. And we came up with a strategy, a gentleman that worked for me, Ed, and Ed and I worked together at BA said, look, what would be the most monumental thing? And we said, what if we got the number one software company for mainframes to have, uh, and then it wasn't cloud computing, it was called software as a service, a SaaS app. And so uh, we thought, wow, well, if we could show the world that someone like uh, a BMC 
who just acquired Remedy could have Remedy Force and build it on our platform, that would tell the whole world that if they could do it, anyone could. Yeah. So that was the shot that really crossed the bow. And we, uh, we did some cross-licensing of technology to accelerate what they could take to market and what they were doing with it. And uh, really rather quickly, Remedy Force was up and out. And here we had this publicly traded billion dollar enter enterprise leader specific to mainframe having a SaaS app. And what it really showed was everyone in the middle in the client server world just got served. You know, we looked at the Creative Labs example, Bobby. Now looking at the Salesforce example, I said frying pan to fire. Think about what you crossed when you came into the marketplace. There was IBM, there was Oracle, there's SAP. You mentioned BEA and some of the mainframe companies, plus there's Microsoft and you know some other formidable players that came up from the PC side. And now Salesforce is like bigger than all of them. Yeah. Not, not Microsoft probably, but I think everyone else. Yeah. Well, I mean, Microsoft has so many different businesses. I'm sure if you were to start parsing and looking at, you know, minus games, anyway, but yes. Okay. So here's my other question. If you're at Salesforce today running the whole ship and, and you know, Mark has to go soon. He just has. No, I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> let's say you were running Salesforce today. What is it that they need to do? It's interesting you say that. So if I look at the last decade, and Mark used to always say we, we always underestimate uh, what we can achieve in a decade and overestimate what we can do in just a couple of years. And I think that that's just the, what fuels our industry. And if you, if you know, like take the last 15 years and, and, and specifically the last 10, they're already pivoting towards that. And, and, and that is the verticals. Because if you think of technology, the first thing is, uh, let me get a horizontal, let me get my use cases, then let me look at it. And by the way, we have major vertical industries that are so ripe for being digitally transformed, disrupted, because they never even went to client server, they're still running mainframes. Mm -hmm. And so now if you think of that leapfrogging, so um, vertical, and those verticals run deep because you start looking at government, you know, the so pharma. Kind of like, kind of like what, you know, the uh, Accentures are doing or the KPM, like building those kinds of practices or do you Most mean certainly. like a vertical market, more traditional? Um, no, subject matter expertise is what really ends up mattering. Because if you think about it, technology gives you a baseline layer that unless you understand the business, you truly can't take advantage of it. So you understand the idiosyncrasies. How would you apply that technology? Can it give you a better, faster, quicker time to market? Can it shorten your supply chain? Like all of those types of things that you would end up looking at. Now, uh, it's an interesting question. You know, they made a couple of runs throwing a consumer player to in there like Buddy Media back in the day. And so it's true to stay true into the enterprise space. And um, I, I, it, you know, I don't know that I have a single answer because I kind of believe in their direction that they're going. And I think the acquisition of Slack is really at the intersection of, and I knew this, which is what drew me to Twilio, communications are going to be key for the next one or two decades. And I actually believe for us, this pandemic, I, I'm, I'm, I have a whole new set of trends that I'm looking at, you know, hyper-consumerization or personalization of, con, you know, us as consumers is going to be really big. Um, look for, you know, maybe ask you the better question. If you were Mark, who, what competitors would you even be worried about? Well, you know, it's interesting. So Slack is one that comes up and it, and it makes sense. And then you talk about core versus, versus uh, what was it? Core versus? Context. context. Con core versus context. I mean, 
it's okay to partner with some of these companies. I just don't have Salesforce in my app right now. It's not a go-to for me. In my business, I don't need it, but I use Slack every day, right? And then I use Zoom right. every day. And then I use all these other things. But would I like to bring in some of that data in a more fluid way? Probably. So don't know exactly how it all stitches together, but- uh, We have a friend. We have a friend. We should probably give him a shout out. This guy named Phil. Yeah. And he says it best. And I, I didn't believe it when I first heard him pitch it. And you and I were there. One office. Yeah. It really has to be one office. Yeah. I don't want to be hunting and pecking. Okay. So we have much to get to. And I want to get to some other stuff besides the, the uh, you know, uh, discography of Bobby's gigs. But Twilio, I mean, they deserve some mention. You you sort of replicated said, I'm going to rebuild an exchange over there. And, and that company went from being a, you know, uh, a rather small player in the world of app, I think app exchange or communication apps. Um, communication apps, yeah, because they weren't really that involved with Salesforce at the time when I started. I, I, I love what you were doing over there. Give give uh, give the audience a little bit of taste of what you were building and how you looked at that, that challenge versus Salesforce. Yeah, that was really, really early on in the API days and people didn't even know what those APIs were, although they'd been around already for over a decade, just in different right. forms, is... Um, how people could easily consume something that prior to that was so hard. And Jeff nailed it. I got to give him credit. The communication yeah, yeah. stack was definitely, um, fortunately for me at, at BA, nine out of 10 telcos in the world we powered. So I actually knew a little bit about the telco space and we built some stuff with Accenture around service delivery platform and where we drove uh, copper to VoIP. And so when I saw what they were up to, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, uh, this is going to be part of the future. And so when I jumped in and started, we had a lot of inbound leads, round robining across some inside sales folks to truly start then understanding what could those, and, and I coined a lot of things where imagine having something that you didn't know how to describe it, but you knew if someone told you their problem, you really quickly could say, oh, you could use us for this, this, and this. And so we termed a use case suitcase where I could go to a meeting and you, depending who are you, CIO, CTO, CEO, you could tell me problems and I could give you a, a use case on how we would do it. And then we started being more proactive and going after what were verticals. And at the time, we really didn't have verticals, but there were dating, communication apps, ride share. And so these were the early foundational formats for who was call centers. And once I saw a couple of call centers, knowing that we drove most of them at VEA, how do we go after that next big call center? And that's really where Flex came in the, and we hired this guy, Rob, and some people were against it and some people were for it. Do you go up stack or down stack? And clearly that set the wave of what's been driving where they are and their market opportunity today because we're replacing every call center because we're at home doing call centers now. Right. But it was, um, it was hard in really getting the enterprise modeling to adopt it because you've got to have, you know, enterprise Customers are used to paying and getting supported in a certain way, even if it's open source technologies. And they have certain requirements, especially the larger they are, whether it's DDRP or PCI or different compliance things. But it's just funny. That was, what was that, 10 years ago now, Twilio? Yeah, probably about seven, eight years ago. We're talking, like, this is still very vogue, the app, the app economy, the API. We're just getting started. Look, yeah. it's interesting. I talked to an investor at uh, a large, large uh, 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 venture fund. Uh, maybe six months ago. And it was funny because he was telling about this company and he's like, you know, it's all really about the developers and everyone. And I said, well, 
for 30 years, I've been talking to developers because the only reason we run at Creative is we had every game developer and we had 99% uh, 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 pl plug and play, the shit work, right, it just worked. Right, right. And then at BA, we would have never gotten anyone without developers. So I get developers and we nailed it at, uh, at, uh, at, at Twilio and at Salesforce. But I think the next decade, we'll leave the developers behind and they're gonna be table stakes. And the fact that he was looking at today's marketplaces being developers, I'm thinking that's just so yesterday. Well, it's an important thing. I believe these low-code, no-code platforms that are going to allow Keith and Bobby to never even need a developer. The fact that my daughter showed me last weekend something she developed, one, I jumped for joy, I didn't even know she went in, but she ran some runtime, no-code things. And actually I was like, wow, wow. We don't even know what's ahead because we never empowered people like us. We've always been dependent on the developer. Well, I Hence, ask your developer, what if you never had to ask them? Because yeah, I need you to do all these APIs for me. I need you to create this code for me. These guys want, yeah. Can you imagine that gets taken off the, off the table? I, you know, we talk about the next decade. It will. And you and I will probably be able to converse to a machine. Yeah. And I tell it my problem. And really quickly, it assembles a quick, lightweight app and we start testing in real time. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I'm excited about it. I guess you feel like it's a little bit of the RPA stuff, a little bit of low code, no code, a little bit of AI infusion of, across all of this stuff. Yeah, I think RPA is more like next generation outsourcing. Look, it's digital free labor, cheap labor, yeah. less labor. We, we, we shipped the stuff to India. Then we moved it to China. Then we moved it to Vietnam. Now we're in Eastern Europe. Now we're actually doing some things in Africa. Well, guess who's less expensive? A bot. And by the way, they don't take sick days. So the bot revolution was really around this first low hanging fruit of which we did for outsourcing of app, things that were activity based. Ultimately though, I believe it will be intelligent based. Well, that's interesting. So the RPA, which we have so many of those companies that are getting a lot of attention right now, they're viewed as the players in the enterprise. A lot of them are going public at huge valuations too. I mean, not to leave that out of the equation, are they just bot factories creating the bot? No, no, it's going to be value. I mean, think about it though, because what you just said, I think is pretty good analogy to like, even if you were to take open source, right? Where it became readily available, but you had to commercially support it. You had to do some things, but all it really meant was a whole new class of people could take advantage because the cost had come down. Well, RPAs allowed it that a whole new set of apps or use cases or problems could be solved because you have an army of labor called these bots that can be trained and can learn and can do it better, faster, less expensive than a human. Yeah. So in the world of enterprise, Bobby, would you rather be starting a company in RPA or low code, no code, which is another hot sort of area or do you like the idea of maybe being on the services side and building up some kind of delivery of, of value um, model that says, hey, I'm not going to chase another exchange where I need to get thousands of people on board, but I can create a, a big margin by becoming either a vertical expert or a, a domain expert? So let's unpack that. Let's start with a third one first, because I was spending some time looking at uh, something you just said. So I'm a big believer in the only way you get ubiquity, which is one thing I really strive for, is how do we pick, how can I take technologies that like seven or eight or nine out of 10 people in the world? Because that's what really excites me. And then how do you decrack that code and make it work? And so when I think through that, there could be this whole new services paradigm, just like when the cloud came into the enterprise and we had these cloud service providers, 
yeah. if we want to drive these technologies like a snowflake, like big data, beyond the top 10% of the companies so that, look, enterprise companies, Fortune 500, once you get past 500,000, who's left? There's 3 million SMBs in America. How will they take advantage of them? By the way, those may be the people that need the technological advantages, especially exiting a pandemic. And so I'm talking to a few companies that are looking for how do I, uh, how do I look to take new technologies and almost have a Phoenix-like experience rising from the ashes? Because I think you and I talked about this. Imagine if you were a restauranteur in this uh, era and you're doing yeah. everything you can to stay alive right. and you're buying gas and you're getting gas lamps and you're putting shelters outside. And then you all of a sudden got to get your menu online. And all of a sudden you've then got to make sure that you update it. And oh, how much are you going to pay these drivers? <laughs> and by the way, those drivers are making more margin delivering your food than you are making the food in your restaurant. And yet you've got to adapt these technologies to stay alive. And are you chasing your tail? And yep. so I think that... Um, I think that we really need as an industry to focus is how can we drive these technologies? Look, companies like Intuit and Microsoft have always done it best for, for folks to uh, you know, drive what the enterprise needs, but deliver to the small guys that really want it. And so we'll find out. Yeah, you know, that, That's kind of why CDW is last man standing. CDW standing. I mean, it's funny to look back and go, look who stood the test of time. Who is still out there? We just lost tries yep. you know, uh, on the retail side. In the distribution side, we just saw another one bite the dust, kind of. I mean, I shouldn't be so negative, but there was a major merger between... Collapsing and consolidation. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, I guess, fun to see. But, you know, what you just said is interesting because um, you turned me on to Chain Store Weekly and now I can't get it. And you see companies like Dollar Tree opening a thousand stores. Yeah. What technology will they be using, not just for them to do that, but for their employees to go? And, and then you see companies like Alta going, well, we're going to open up inside of Targets. So it almost is, we're going to see models and modelings and stores that won't close that will be resurrected because there's sort of this renaissance occurring with, uh, with we, depending on who you serve, we need to see people. Right. Interesting too, to think we mentioned retail stores how that will be changing from the standpoint of the customer experience, because maybe a lot of it happens offline, maybe a lot of it happens online in the store versus outside the store. And then there's also the delivery element, the return element. Those are going to change radically. Yeah. And we're just talking about the enterprise space. The consumer space gets me beyond excited because we're just really scratching the surface, I think, in terms of um, early adopter, early majority. And I, you know, I've uh, been you know, trying to build out a smart home to see what they're like and what's out there. And you have 10 technologies and 20 companies, and even the biggest have really, sh really crappy consumer experiences. And you sit there and you go, how could this, uh, you know, X billion dollar company serve me in this way? And so I think that uh, on both fronts, both in the commercial and the consumer space, the next decade is going to be on fund. So, you know, edge computing, let me, let me AIML. Um, IOT. Yeah, I see you doing it. I read an article today that the edge market is now forecasted at 800 billion. And I started thinking, and we're just getting started. Okay, let me take this in a little bit of a different direction because I knew we would go over time, but that's okay. When I think about um, starting one of these companies and they're on a meteoric rise, they've already crossed the chasm. Now they're on a the hyperbolt, you know, blitz scaling this company. They're on their way to $100 million in sales. They need somebody to come in there. So they go, Bobby, get in here. We need you. Come run the place. Maybe the whole company, maybe maybe sales and partnerships and this or that. 
how do you structure something in today's environment compared to what we did back in the day? Um, what do you what do you look for in terms of an organizational model that will help you take a high growth company and build it correctly? So I teach a class on that. I was actually it. Um, I hate admitting it. We came up this morning and. A different conversation, but there's three stages that I believe that, that I've learned that work for me. And everyone goes, "Hey, what's your playbook? What's going on?" Uh-huh. And it's interesting. I heard I heard um, I heard this guy ask that question in a webinar, I'm trying to take advantage of seeing people I'd never get to see because these you know these mediums couldn't do it. And they ask him, "Hey, well, what playbooks are you bringing here to uh, to Snowflake?" And their CEO said, "Playbooks? Do I look like a coach?" <laughs> and 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 in reality, I tell people they're frameworks that tell you your past can help predict or guide for the future, but there is no real way to get there. So truly coming in. And so the phases are knobs, dials, and levers. Mm. And, um, and I, I did actually never had it classed down until you turned me on to the folks at the NASDAQ and I had to put it on the paper to t- talk to real startup people. The knob phase, this is the hardest phase, whether you call it product market fit, the lean startup. And, and I use the knob because I'm old and I remember being in the car and we wanted to hear something in that red thing and you use that knob and you could never quite find that station. But when you got it, you knew something was there and you tried to dial it in. So that knob phase and trying to find that station is the most important. Who do you let in the car? Is your seatbelt on? How fast do you drive? Do you have enough gas in the tank to get there? Can we find a station we all agree to listen to? There's yeah. a lot of analogies. Then we start dialing it in and this is where you get the fidelity. And this is where, and someone asked me, well, how many SDRs, EBRs, XDRs, blah, blah, blah. Those didn't even exist a decade ago. Stop. What problem are you solving? Let's give that person a title, a name, a tactic, and then let's come out of that. So we're dialing it in to understand ratios. One rep, $2 million, 10 leads, four qualified. So like that's where it starts getting in. The, the dialing is the granularity, the scale, yeah. where you can also have some you know, rowboat theories, test, invest, fail fast, but then you get to the lever. And once you get that, that's when you pull that down and you just hire. You hire until you get so far above the hiring curve that you need marketing to keep doing it because you know the market is so large. And um, you know, Mark did it best. We wanted to be a billion dollar company. Each rep carried a $2 million quota. Do the math. How many reps did we have? 600. Why? Because you have to have a productivity bell curve. Who's coming on? Who's making quota? Who's not? And that's how we hit our billion dollars. I would have asked the math question because of the, I didn't factor in all the, uh, yeah, but you know what, you bring up an interesting point because I didn't want to be so north and south with our conversation. In other words, all about building businesses and making money and all that stuff. There's a personal element to this. How do you build the right culture? How do you find the right people? How do you solve for diversity and inclusion? How do you solve for, um, you know, people being, you know, joyous, joyful when they come to work and, you know, feel good about what they do when they leave. How do you factor in all that? You know, that's a tough one because I think this last, you know, 12, 14 months have truly tested what any of us would have ever thought we could put ourselves through from, uh, from, from a work, from a building culture. Imagine starting a company and never meeting the employees in person. I mean, there's a lot of things that I applaud entrepreneurs that are doing it today. I, uh, uh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. But now, look, let's take it on the onset. If you were starting, you and I were starting a company today, mm-hmm. we truly could start it with foundational elements where, and I know you know this, words like inclusion and diversity weren't even part of our conversation because we, we, they're the fabric of why we exist. You know, five years ago, people never said that because they didn't have to. 
Today, people want to, and there's a big difference between have and want. And I believe some of the great entrepreneurs that we see today want and know that the melting pot of companies is what will make them spectacular and unique. Uh, I don't know that there's a silver bullet. I have a few thoughts though, Bobby, and a lot of them we've shared together. We've worked together before. I think the idea of of creating that transparency with management and almost trying to create a no management kind of an approach. Hey, I'm running sales because I maybe know the most about sales, but that doesn't mean I have all the answers and they're all my plays or all my frameworks. You come in and run it. I mean, in fact, you're the you're the CEO or you're the vice president of sales for March. It's coming next month. Get ready because you're running everything. And just, I'm, a, I, I'm, de- I'm definitely a big believer in cross rotation, <laughs> most yeah. certainly. Yeah, I'm not suggesting it as, as to be innovative, but I think I'm going to take that approach, whether, whether I'm talking about specific roles, so I think it empowers people. They get to see with, with a greater perspective of what works, what doesn't work. Oh, that's what this person does. Oh, they have to really do a lot of other things I wasn't even aware of. I think that gives them a lot more buy-in and understanding what they're working toward and how they're doing it. I also like the idea of not giving a shit um, you know, if they have a, a checkbox in their background about a certain education or a certain, you know, theory, can they do the job, right? And there are ways of, of, of interviewing for that, but I wouldn't eliminate people um, based on their inability to hit one checkbox. Yeah. So many people have been brought in to play certain positions where they didn't have the right resume or fit for that. They came in and guess what? They knocked it out of the park and they were huge successes. No one thought you know, Steve Jobs would be the greatest CEO of all time. And then here comes Elon Musk. And, you know, there are people that wanted to get rid of him, you know, very early on in the days of Tesla. Uh, Could you imagine? I mean, just what a crazy group you had at all of your places, especially creative. Um, But you know what? 10 guys at, at that company ended up running major organizations and did some amazing things. For sure, for sure. You know, you used a word that I think us as an industry and as leaders, we need to really figure out how we balance and, and protect the word without doing, which is empowerment. And uh, look, I, I completely agree with you. We all have a role to play in a team. That's why it's a team. But you can't let the crew captain the ship or it definitely will run ashore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do believe in leadership for sure. I, I sometimes get a little bit more um, on my uh, on the side where... Anarchy can rule for a little while, but at the end of the day, yeah, you need to go. You need to go drive things and, and make some things happen. So, on our on our couple of final questions, Bobby, just uh, reflecting a little bit uh, uh, on the look back, any major career things you like? Oh shoot, why did I do that? Or do you take the view where, you know, it was meant to be, and that there were some benefits from that? It made me a little tougher. You've had so many interesting, you know, turns and stuff. Yeah. That's a good question. I've been asked that, hey, how come you never stuck to the same thing and why do you look? And um, my curiosity outweighs my intelligence. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I'm intrigued with how technology, you know, having been in so long and really seeing the, the, you know, the growth from the x86, the, you know, the green screen to what we have today, the capabilities have always drove me to what's next. You know, my wife yells and says, God, if you could just stick to what you create, which have been mainstream markets and not worried about skating to what's next, you might well, I wouldn't have any fun because solving those hard problems on the frontier, how do you become a smart grid so that we all don't have to build more power plants? How do you make IoT networks ubiquitous in every space type? Like hard problems that no one else could solve that you get drawn to going, wow. 
And so sometimes you get kicked in the teeth. I probably regret not being the cloud king, having created what we have today. But, you know, I, I also tell people, I forgot more than you'll ever learn. So ask me a question and I'll tell you an answer. Because um, I've taken a lot of that and, and, and I still help companies or on my career onward. Um, I, one thing I would say to every individual, which is be true to yourself and be happy as I approach, you know, the latter part of, I don't regret any of them other than perhaps uh, spending too much time away from my family, which I've tried to course correct later in life by taking time off, which I've been able to. But yeah, um, our industry is consuming. And I think that our industry is, uh, in, in this pandemic has even been more consuming, you know, so much we've seen, you know, no Zoom Fridays. Like the fact that we have to mandate those things or have that be a topic tells me that we're really not people first, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're companies first. Well, I think it's great that you're still out there, Bobby, and any company would be lucky to have you on their board or help you running the companies and leading that charge. Um, but I also feel like sharing these kinds of, of pieces of advice, whether you're a mentor or an advisor, phenomenal, because that's what's going to end up creating this, um, this next generation of companies that can provide uh, as can serve as models, right, for the, for the larger set of companies coming behind them. So that's pretty exciting. I think so, for sure, for sure. All right. So what else is on the uh, on the agenda for what's next for Bobby? Great question. There's no shortage of markets, but I've recently um, got involved with a group called um, Upward Women, and they created a new group, Upward Men, and uh, had a, uh, a strong mother that really guided me to get to where I am in life. And I'm the father of a daughter. And so I was gravitated towards this. And the whole goal is upward mobility and movement. For, uh, for women and, and what I'm actually hosting this week, as a matter of fact, how to be a better ally. And I'm driving the agenda for the year because I think it's a very important thing that um, we as individuals and we specifically as men need to make sure that we can level a playing field for anyone that wants to come in, whether you're a female or a minority or, or what it is. And this just so happened to be the cause because it was near and dear to my heart. I think that's very, very important for leaders of all types, but specifically men in our industry to embrace diversity and inclusion because otherwise we'll never understand or learn what's truly out there. Beautiful, I love it. I think you're absolutely right. What, what, what uh, stops us or precludes us from doing it is knowing how and asking, and we can start to break some of that down by what you're talking about. That's fantastic. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure seeing you and catching up. You know that. And, and uh, I can't wait to see uh, what's next for us. All right. I look forward to it, too. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support. Welcome any feedback. And would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.